Good morning, digital wildcatters. I like that. I got a symbol. It's about time. <laughs> All right. This is a very important week. And do you know why this week is so important? One quick guess. Why is this week important? Because it's the biggest golf tournament Wrong. of my week. Why is this week so important? Quick guess. Um, it's post-Easter. No. It is post the first week in April. Why is that important? Because Yates males die the first week of April. Oh, shit, dude. You're April, alive, man. I'm alive. April awesome. 6th, my grandfather died. April 6th, my great-grandfather died. April 1st, my great-great-grandfather <laughs> died. We stress that first week. I am here in the second week of April. I've got good news and bad news for you, Chuck. The, on the, the good news is you survived. Yeah. The bad news is we have been talking about the apocalypse and the nuclear winter, and that could be this year. So- Enjoy the next, you know, six to nine months while you have it. Survive to go to the zombie party. <laughs> That's there right. That's All right. right, we're in. <laughs> All right, let's jump right into this. We talked a little bit about this last week. Actually, we talked a lot about it. OPEC coming out with their surprise cuts. Boom, Mark catches up what happened kind of post-apocalyptic OPEC cut. Well, you had a pretty significant pop on Monday. I think the XOP was up just under 5% and then proceeded to give back about half of that through the remainder of the week. Now it's recovered again about back to that peak level last week on Monday because of something else we're going to talk about that broke over the weekend. Um, so we're, we're still on that tug of war, I think, between you know what's the macro outlook going to do to demand um, can we say what's the Macron outlook? Exactly. Ooh, yeah. Damn. Tie it all together. Like that. That's I, I did pick up some, <laughs> some, I guess, some feedback from the institutional side that it, it sounds like there's still a, a cautiously constructive mindset in terms of what OPEC is doing here. Maybe not so much signaling um, getting in front of weak demand by cutting back, uh, rather than you know setting a higher floor potentially. They did. Uh, raise their official selling price to uh, to China, and then um, you know the 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 notion that we've talked about as well is the discipline that continues in the U.S. upstream st sector and the threat of taking market shares is much lower now. Mm -hmm. So a, a little bit bolder move, but again, it's you know it's not something that I think carries us in one direction higher. I think. I think I read something this morning said equities continue to grind higher as we as we climb this wall of macro worry. That's pretty poetic. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was. Let's let, let, I, let's. Okay, so Kirk, here's what I think. One, and we I, I haven't looked yet this morning, but the four year strip just didn't move last week. Nope. So near term was up, but four year strip didn't. And we still have a tail problem. People don't believe there's value in the tail of oil and gas reserves because we're going to be regulated out of business. Am I right? Am I wrong? Is that maybe explaining stocks up 5%, giving some of it back, and then our next story kind of making it up? I, I think it's a preoccupation with you know the next set of data points in the very short term around, you know, are we going to have a hard landing? You know, what what continues to unravel from this banking crisis? What are central banks going to do? And, you know, what's, what's the overall state of health of the, of the global macro where, you know, when, when things go really bad, the energy equities 
take a pretty big back seat to to everything else. So I, Mark's Mark's basically saying, Kurt, you can't rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic potentially. That's pretty much the way I'm seeing seeing the chairs being rearranged. The, to use a term of flight to quality, it seems that as we look at the macro, the Macron issues out there, which is we got a we got an economy that's about to just, I think, go to the sheds. You've got guys like even I mean OPEC is making cuts. You've got people like Shell, they're almost rewriting the ship, if you will. Shell came out, my boy YL, as you know. Um, he texted me earlier today and said that I could talk about this. But basically, their focus with with their shareholders now is that energy security is key. So we've totally backed off of it's the environment stupid to energy security is key and reducing oil and gas production is, quote, not healthy. So I'm seeing a flight to quality. We saw Exxon totally get out of Brazil because they've spent billions of dollars and haven't found a lot of oil. They're re sort of organizing where they're going to put their capex into things that they think are lower cost, higher quality outputs. But it seems like everyone's sort of putting the metal down to we need to put more production. We need more production, but we also need more exploration. But it needs to be um, more efficient. What do you think, Chuck? You know, Mark and I kind of talked about this when we deep dived the Deloitte report just Again, you know, show me a man's actions or show me a man's incentives. I'll show you a man's actions. Again, Damn. we all say this. We need more production. We need more exploration. And we trade it, you know, four times EBITDA. And so where's where's the incentive to do that, you know? And so that's that's where I keep coming back to is when the, the shit hits the fan here, we're going to have one of two things. We're going to have $200 oil. Or multiples will increase to eight and ten times EBITDA, and guess what? When we do that, we'll generate a lot more oil. Yeah, I think. I mean, I've I've been banging the drum. In fact, I've invested in quite a few exploration companies, technologies, because I believe exploration is totally under underfunded. However, I don't think the big oil companies can actually spend a lot of money in exploration because they're going to get hammered by investors, especially. As you got this sort of the clouds of, of climate, but I think they're resetting the narrative to be able to spend more money in those areas. I think we're going to see it. We're not going to see it now, but I think we're going to see it maybe in the second half of this year. I, I don't know what the capability or capacity to do conventional exploration, which is really what you're talking about, is, yes, is kind of I restarting or that. ramping that back up. You know, funding it is one thing because it's, through this period of of retrenchment and kind of stingy capital allocation, <clears throat> there there has been a reticence to talk about things that are long cycle for the most part. That's why shale was attractive, et cetera. Uh, it doesn't matter now, but when when we start talking about true conventional exploration, we're talking in you know for deep water for greenfield projects, you're talking in decade plus type of horizons. Okay. Uh, well, let me let me push on that, Mark. So why are we seeing in other parts of the world these big refinery projects? These are like 50-year investments that non-United States-based companies are making with people like China. Why is that happening? That's be, long cycle. Because the international players, and this that was a comment, the previous comment was one from the context of 
energy companies or oil and gas companies talking to U.S. investors on the institutional side. They didn't mm. want to hear about long cycle. Mm. And so I think, you know, at least a couple of the U.S. companies, a handful are going to be part of the leadership to, to re-ramp that activity. I'm not saying that the internationals are not pressing ahead and it's a little bit more opaque and, you know, the actions, watch what I do, not what I say. Um, the actions like long, long horizon refinery and petrochemical investments mm. in China by Saudi Arabia, for example, speaks to, you know, that, that much longer view. Yes, we're, we're going to, we're going to be about our, our traditional business of exploring, finding, developing, and producing. So if you're one of those guys that's wearing sort of the vest, well, I'm wearing a vest today, so I'm going to laugh at myself, but those guys that everyone makes fun of, the Chad, the, sort of the Chads, the finance guys that are finance listening. Finance bros. The finance bros that are listening to our show, what is, and they're young, clearly. Um, what does that say for their investment as a career in oil and gas in the United States? Or is this just a, a blip? I, from what I heard you saying, Marcus, we're being outflanked by internationals. What, 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 what do you think is the prognosis we, or the vision for oil and gas in the United States right now? We, we've talked about it uh, in most recently about the Saudis and what they're doing with China and downstream investments. Uh, but also remember, we did mention that Petronas had come out pretty vocally and said that we're really going to put the pedal to the metal on CapEx and not only domestically, but we're going to, you know, we're really going to push the upstream investment and growth to the tune of, you know, raising CapEx on an annual run rate rate basis, I think 43% over their previous five-year run rate. So, you know, nobody in the U S is in, in Europe, uh, the big super majors are talking about doing that at God, that just, level. Just seems so <laughs> awesome to go against the grain and it's right. time to make money. Well, but you know, it, it's you almost, think? it's almost back to the future, if you will, because early days in my career, the thesis from investors was we need energy exposure because it's kind of your, your counterbalance to the recession. You know, if mm -hmm. it happens, it was your inflation hedge that, and if you were disciplined enough, when commodities had their run and you sold and take your gains, you could have three and four years worth of losses. And that's just how investors approached it. And then the shell revolution happened and you put a cap on oil at, you know, for 10 years there at 60 bucks, if right. you will. And you put a cap on gas at three bucks or whatever it was for the shale revolution. And you no longer had that outsized gain possible anymore. So, so capital flood the industry for that and other host of reasons. I think if your talent today, you're sitting there going, we've, we've got an outsized gain out there somewhere coming at some point. We're going to be short oil. We're going to have $200 oil. And nobody deals like, with a crisis like the United States. I mean, you can say about our day to day, and we suck, and we play checkers. I'm not saying we suck. No, we play checkers. I'm definitely not going to say that, that the UK sucks because we know people listening to the yeah. show. <laughs> no, we don't. She doesn't listen. <laughs> I'll tell her Mark talked a lot this That's episode, right. and he was wearing his Clemson jersey. But uh, no, the um, but at, no, at the end of the day, nobody deals with a catastrophe like the United States. So when the catastrophe happens. We will throw all these resources at it. And so if you're sitting there at the table, you're going to have your run. Oh, just be say can. I mean, exactly. you're just, yes, preach just, it. 
Just just be sure when you make your money, put some of it in the bank. All right. So, Chuck, let's put your old hat on. Right. So you're this you know wealthy guy flying private jets, raising <sighs> money for people. Wow. Remember those Hold days? On. Let me have a moment. Those were such cocaine good. strippers, whiskey. I mean, you probably still drink Jack Daniels because it was cool. The private, still. the private plane painted as Eddie Van Halen's guitar was literally the coolest thing I I've mean, done in my life. So that's you. Okay, I that was me. Chad, Chad walks into your office with with a geologist and a geophysicist in tow and pitches you like, "Hey, no one's going into exploration. We are the crack team. We're young. We're going to go find oil." No one's doing it. Can you raise money for them or not? So you turn it, you kick them out of their office. So I, I still, I still think you have to use the Bucky Brock approach. And Bucky Brock was classic New Orleans small oil and gas company. We were doing a fairness opinion because he he had turned eighty two. He was selling the company. He had one offer from Key Production, which became Simerex, which right. is now what is Simerex called these days. They've gone to some other other name, but I'll anyway. Look it up. Anyway, um, so we were actually struggling on the metrics to say the deal was fair, even though he'd run this broad process. Only one bidder had shown up, and uh, so he was bitching about Coterra. Coterra, yeah. So he was bitching about having to get a fairness opinion, and it was really funny because the CEO of the company, Ken Stuckey, was this great guy, and. He goes, Ken, why are we having to do all this stuff with Stevens doing all this data and all this? And and he goes, well, we've got to get a fairness opinion for the shareholders. And he goes, well, does key production have to get a fairness opinion? And Ken goes, no, it's not material to them. They don't have to get it. And Mr. Brock looked at me and goes, they're fucking me out of my company so bad. They don't even need a fairness opinion. <laughs> but what Bucky Brock said when he raised all his money that he raised during the 70s, he would go to you know, think the uh, the hotel banquet room and, you know, buy everybody dinner and get up there. And Bucky was the most honest person on the planet. A lady one time raised her hand and said, Mr. Brock, Mr. Rock, is this a risky investment? And Bucky Brock didn't miss a beat and said, yes, ma'am. That's why I want to do it with your money, not mine. <laughs> so I would be glad to play agent and try to raise money for these young whippersnappers. I just don't know that it's out there. And I'm not going to do it with my money. I'm retired. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm just we're, we're calling a lot of people. There's an opportunity on the on the table right now. Yeah, I think in the public markets it's going to be very nichey. That's a word. It is at least now. In, at least in the leading edge. And I, I do have a pretty strong conviction in that it's going to create some value, uh, meaning long cycle, uh, international offshore exploration oriented type of opportunities and you can play those in, you know, first derivatives like EGADs, the offshore drillers. Right. So, wow. All I know is we said it here first. <laughs> we did. Just saying. Okay. If we, if we can't <clears throat> find it, which we're all kind of saying at this moment, doesn't feel like we're out searching for it. Can't find it. <laughs> do you go buy it? And what happened this weekend, Mark? Well, there was a, uh, I guess a recurrence, as I would think about it, of of a multi-year kind of running uh, whisper of Exxon looking at Pioneer, right? Which I recall as far back as ten years ago, sitting in some investor conference one-on-ones, and this being a topic of conversation with the company, and 
this was when we had transitioned from the gas phase of shale into oil. And there was a lot of excitement and scramble for initial positions and inventory and acreage and type curves, et cetera. And, you know, XTO was finding its, its sea legs as a, as a part of, of Exxon and having to pay that, or excuse me, play that, that Permian game, which was much more of a, an independence um, hedge fund, well-watching game. And that's just not the game that they were playing. Mm. And so there was there was all kinds of rumors that, you know, popped up occasionally that so-and-so needed to buy so-and-so to get the juice of what mm. XYZ Independent had that they didn't have. Uh, well, we know Exxon, Chevron, others have large-scale positions in the Permian. Um, this is a different, I think, a different phase of of maturity, obviously, for the Permian you know, is this something that's cropped up as a result of all the, the recent discussion about we're running out of tier one, going to tier two inventory, you know, the, the inventory life uh, that supports growth in the Permian is inside mm -hmm. of a decade. Um, certainly there's a, a scale up thesis as well, um, all of those things. But, you know, it's it's got the group up a little bit today. Uh, Pioneer has at least held on last time I looked about a five or 6% pop this morning and traded about, about five times its normal volume. So I'm at this point, Exxon buying pioneer. I worry about the actual scale argument there because at some point, I mean, I get it. The more acreage you overlap, the more long laterals you can drill. It does feel like those deals get done. Mm enough out there that having more acreage does it help okay maybe i can buy that is there some leverage you have with the service providers the rig companies and all that feels like you got all the leverage you want even if you were hiring one rig these days but maybe i'm wrong on that um there is inflation happening out there i just want to know what 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 price per barrel did they did they put in for this for break even the uh the forecast yeah yeah that's what i want to know for years exxon always had just this and you would know better than i would but didn't they always have an incredibly low oil price forecast because that always supposedly pushed the best projects upwards or very there there was a suite of price decks as suite. i recall uh from flat to ramp to you know it just depended upon where the capital priorities were in you know, what the, what the duration of projects were. Well, if this thing actually gets, if, once we get more information, we need to break this down. Yeah. Well, we can do that well, because I'm not sure the scale, I'm not sure Exxon buying Pioneer. Pine, Pioneer is, on is an equivalent basis today produces more in the Permian than Exxon does. They're, they're in the same neighborhood. Exxon is right at mm -hmm. 600,000 barrels a day, reiterated mm -hmm. or uh, reinvigorated. It's, it's, objective to get to a million barrels equivalent a day by 2027 in its fourth quarter uh, earnings call. Uh, Pioneer's right at, I think, uh, 667 was the number for, or 662 was the number for 4Q run rate. So you're, you're effectively slightly more than doubling on a current production basis if you're Exxon looking at, at Pioneer's Permian 
premium production. If you're Chad and you work for Pioneer, are you nervous right now? Yeah, I think if you, um, well, Exxon's leaving Las Colinas, so. So you basically need to move to Houston. To the woodlands. In, in this, in the, <laughs> oh, yeah, let's give yeah, it more specific. <laughs> the woodlands. In, in this scenario, which I have always referred to affectionately as South Dallas, but. Um, so basically not, not far, that far. Yeah, look, the, I think it was 2015 was when XCO got buttoned up in Fort Worth and all of that was, was moved to, to Houston. It may have been later than that. I'm, I'm drawing a blank on, I think 2015 is when the campus opened and then fully. And then uh, a couple of years after that, XTO was, I was saw a BCD study that relocated. basically told us at Shell when we were looking at a ton of M&A activity that like 90% of acquisitions are value destroying. So I'm going to, you know, this is going to be a, this is a long-term play. I'm not sure it's going to be, it's, it's a great, it's a great, but we got to break it down. You know, this is just right off the cuff. There, there are a couple of pieces out this morning, you know, just commenting on and without, any more specific information than the facts and figures around the portfolios. But I, I thought one was particularly interesting. Uh, Doug Leggett at, at uh, B of A talked about, you know, free cash flow has peaked. Yeah. And, you know, companies like Pioneer looking at a pretty severe inflection in cash taxes in 2023, which certainly isn't helpful to how you think about valuation and performance relative to that. Um, rate of change, which certainly isn't, isn't positive if, if indeed that is the case. And basically the point is, look, it's from this point, it's pretty much a bet on oil prices. And historically we've not paid up with a sustainable premium on, you know, the, these types of things have mm. always, always been viewed by investors to be somewhat transitory. And so there's a discount, uh, a bit of a structural discount. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, there's one person that knows whether this is going to happen or not, and it's Mr. Sheffield. And when it's going to happen, he'll let us know. Yeah. I mean, it, if you think about, you know, should we call him right now? If, <laughs> if you're a pioneers board and management team and you're in your macroeconomic camp and I've missed other kind of frenzied peak opportunities, if you will, where people are overpaying or, it's kind of the stupid money uh, bidder who who wins. Is it you know is, is it something to think about in front of a hard landing? We've just been through a washout because of COVID, et cetera. You know, is it is it ultimately time um, to to exit and and combine that with the fact? Yes, Pioneer's got twenty plus years of tier one and tier two inventory, but is there a step change better as an independent going forward that, that makes a, a higher valuation case? Hmm. Well, and the other thing to think about too, is we used to always joke at uh, whenever we'd run a sale for an asset, you know, you're not trying to be build a consensus. You're just trying to find one until you get retraded by that one. And then you say, you're trying to find one with a backup bid. I mean, if you really think about it, how many people, could buy Pioneer. I mean, it's it's not, I mean, it, it's the old Bum Phillips line about Earl Campbell, right? 
I don't know how big the class is, but it doesn't take a long time to call roll. Yeah, I don't. I mean, Conoco? Conoco, Exxon. Exxon. I mean, Shell's you know, not going to do it, are Chevron's they? Chevron's got no. a ton of acreage. Um, I mean, would Chevron be able to do that? I mean, maybe. I, I guess. know a few, a few key think, chads at Conoco. I need to fish around for that one. There you go. I, I'm I sure there's think, a discussion I would think just on. given the direction that BP, Shell, and Total have gone in this whole transition conversation, that they'd be out. Yeah, I don't yeah. see them being interested. But I've been surprised before. Yeah. No, Be- I mean, because it is a, you know, for, for the kind of, I hate to call that any in that, in that category, a, a second tier, but just in terms of scale, obviously a, an addition to pioneer for a BP would be exceptionally meaningful because they're now, at least from market cap standpoint, smaller than ConocoPhillips. I mean, this is a U.S. play and I see a U.S a U.S. producer wanting to buy them. I don't see international players seeing this as a big play unless they're hedging their bets and believe that the U.S. is going to be – that access to the oil in the U.S. is critical, probably most likely for export. That's what that's how I see it. If you're international, I don't see it being a big play by an international firm like a Shell or a BP being interesting, but I could be wrong. I mean, is there an intra-peer group? combination i don't think so but i mean really the only one of size that at least in the permian that makes sense is just from a pure parameters or attribute standpoint and it's mainly size and and focus is uh is diamondback yeah good call yeah diamondback i mean is there any reason for oxy to sniff around or they survived anadarko why go back why go why go why go back there and then i guess i mean it's not an eog thing they wouldn't do it but we'll we'll see more in terms of commentary and speculation we used to play this game you know kind of who's next what's next or or Who's who's potentially in this orbit of of can Toby Rice centers. raise enough money to go buy them? There we go. <laughs> Natural gas prices sub two bucks. I'm well, let's happy. rumor. Let's start a rumor right now. There we go. You heard it here. Heard it here. Uh, one one last <laughs> thing. Uh, just uh, just looking at consensus twenty four multiples of EBITDA, EV to EBITDA, Exxon trades about a turn higher at six point two times versus Pioneer. So it's you know, it's it's something, but arguably accretive. Yeah, and and you know, Exxon's equity currency is is more valuable than it's been, at least on a relative basis, in quite a while, just given the the, the share performance. Yeah, no, and if you're if you're rich people at Pioneer, and you're used to your dividend, you're not going to do it for a stock that doesn't pay a dividend. So you you got that too. The one thing I'll, the other thing just to kind of throw out there is I think there are 15 members of the Exxon board. You know, three of them are engine number one that are committed to the transition, et cetera. So right now you're looking like, you know, if you were going to do this, you got to get eight out of 12 votes. Right? Yeah, that's right. And and that's a little different than than history. And so. But I'm sure they're going to be pointing to their other competitors that are banging the same narrative, which is energy security. Um, climate is important, but just right not right now, that's not what we should be worried about. 
Yes or no? I'd, I'd like to be in Exxon's investor relations office today listening to the calls that they're getting inbound from. Yeah. Dude, I've always <laughs> said this since the moment I stepped into this industry that Exxon's the best in the world at just being straight honest. Like they don't fluff shit up. I love how they just speak directly of what they want to do. What do you say, Mark? True or not true? I think they're always just the purest. Yeah, they're very fact-based. They're very matter-of-fact, and they're very high conviction in that they've got the problem solved, right? They're, uh, And that's comforting to grandma but that holds there's also, stock. you know, there's also been, historically, there's been a lot of frustration because they haven't been as, you know, for lack of a better term, they haven't been as extroverted as some of the more market and analyst-friendly management teams out there it's you know it's all it's all relative in that in that realm um but they've been a lot more open i think particularly ever since they took on xto and got yeah. you know got in the shale sweepstakes you know and, and a lagging stock has a lot to do with your willingness to to engage as well no, that's true. So former business partner of mine who started his career at Exxon was a production engineer and was in a bar and met a girl. Who do you work for? Oh, I work for Exxon. She said, which one? <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. All right. Funny. Let's jump to uh, France. Macron goes and meets God, with Xi. Man. So we have the France and China Power Summit. Six-hour mm. meeting, Macron visits multi-day. Mark, what happened at that? Because it makes my stomach turn to even talk about it. Go ahead. Well, President Macron was, I think, uh, taking the opportunity to put some separation between France and both sides of this brewing conflict over Taiwan basically saying we're not going to be a vassal and get sucked into certainly military conflict and that Europe is more than ever ready to stand on its own as really the third superpower. And so that's, that's the political dynamic distancing a bit, both from, from China, but also I think in a more um, pointed way, making comments about um, distancing more from the U.S. And, and so, what are the implications of that? I don't know. My one one story I saw was right after um, the French president, and I don't know if this is true or not. They'd asked them to at least delay the the startup of this encirclement military exercise uh, around Taiwan until they got out of the airspace. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's another in the running threads of the running themes that we've been talking about, uh, you know, the Saudi push to invest in the downstream in China, um, what OPEC has done seemingly unilaterally, uh, the, the notion that, you know, other currencies will ultimately be more attractive or more desired as a reserve in that, um, you know, in the very in a tactical sense or the very political sense, they weren't happy with our answer on not taking the opportunity to refill the SPR. 
Yeah. And so the U S is, is there, there's a bit of, there's a bit of uh, quite a bit more tension on all dimensions of, of the international relationship as it relates to the energy question. Um, The military and geopolitics is something that I'm not certainly going to make any predictions about. I mean, as an arrogant American, you know, I love Paris. Paris is amazing. Now the Parisians, especially the taxi drivers, they they don't like me so much, but the rest of France, they know what we did for them in World War II. But when it goes to the politics, it's interesting because Macron said the worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and adapt to the American rhythm and a Chinese overreaction. It's hilarious how I saw that. I mean, Europeans are, I mean, I love their, I mean, arrogance too. And, but I think in some ways, as I look at this, we've seen France and other countries in Europe sort of like give us a finger every few years just to say, hey, we're, you don't control us. But part of me thinks in some ways that the rest of the world are moving while us here are arguing over whether to drink Bud Light or not. I mean, it seems like there are some chess moves happening and we're sort of just watching it, but I'm I'm nervous about this, Mark. Well, we're we're preoccupied with scoring points on both sides in the culture wars. And our adversaries are those who are looking to maybe get a, a strategic advantage that they haven't had for decades or maybe never had. You know, love this distraction. I they're they're not playing that. I game. agree. Uh, you you guys stay kind of embroiled and fighting amongst yourselves about this, the stuff we don't even understand. And a lot of uh, the Eastern hemisphere, we don't understand why it's, it's such a big kind of front of mind political issue and why you're expending so much time on it. A lot of it is unresolvable because it's, you know, philosophies and morals. And it's, I mean, Macron did say that Europe must f- stay focused on its own objectives, which I would assume in some ways is energy security now, I laugh at that. We laughed at on this show before about how Europe sort of took their eye off of the ball and got into some compromised positions. But then I look at us, I'm thinking, are we not also in that same debate for our own energy security? And, and this, uh, I'm glad you kind of said Europe, and some would maybe look at what Macron was speaking about, was speaking for Europe. He's trying, but yeah. Right. But if you look at France, their energy security is a lot different than some of their neighbors in Europe. Right. Right. Because they've got 70% nuclear power. They're not nearly as industrial, which means their natural gas intensity or dependency is a lot less right. than, say, obviously Germany, for example. Saw a pretty nifty bubble chart on on this particular aspect. So they're they're speaking from a position of relative strength or relatively l- lower risk because they don't have those dependencies right so i think it's a, a a sticky wicket look europe's playing the same i think the same game politically that we are it's just been so preoccupied with the energy renewable transition E part of ESG. It's been right. the, it's been the epicenter of it with you know COP a couple of years ago, et cetera. And what's come out of the green movement out of Europe, um, that preoccupation is very much the same in the in the uh, maybe the uh, uh, 
the the endless debates and disagreements over you know issues that are not that are distracted from or divergent from addressing the things that are front and center which are things like energy security and you know strategic advantage so this huge nothing burger i mean this is the french <laughs> popping up like they periodically do to go say, back to drinking your wine and eating cheese yeah Chuck. we're we're still relevant we're still relevant i mean why they have a seat on the security council in the un is beyond me they're the french the, bro but they're the i mean they what's the old saying there has not been a shot fired in the defense of uh paris in the history of the of the of the country there's so, rioting going on though in paris i mean are we seeing a they french revolution yeah because they, <laughs> they don't want to retire at age 62 or don't want to have to retire at 65 instead of 62 i, I do think so this, I, I think i think this is hey we winding. riot for that you and me yeah, exactly <laughs> I uh, almost rioted when I had to retire at 51 or whatever right. it was. But no, I, I think this is going to wind up being a nothing burger. I think G knows that France speaks for nothing but but uh, luxury brands. And so <laughs> it'll it'll the, 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 this is a nothing burger. Dude, I'm not trying to trash America's. I am American through and through. But I just feel like we're getting out maneuvered by everyone. And maybe it's just narrative. Maybe it's just a nothing burger. But. Oh man, I I, I think, and I you know from a, a France specific standpoint, that's probably right, but it speaks to a larger um, inability or or a larger state of chaos in the Western players in this conversation, right? Those in the East have stayed focused on really what matters both tactically and strategically and front and center to all that is, is kind of energy and military security. So let's do, let's do this. So to kind of recap from uh, last week, the European girlfriend who's British <laughs> actually, so she's not European. Yes, actually now. Exactly. She's British. She liked your line on that, but no, she, she chastised us for talking about Europe as this block and Europe is actually anywhere from 20 to 30 different countries they all have unique characteristics no. so what we no well so what i've traveled in europe you just need to, if you have a euro passport you can go anywhere yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just like a state to state you're bro. gonna get me in trouble on the yeah. home front she bro. doesn't listen you just told me yeah so. exactly no so what we're gonna do on bde is we're gonna close each show for the next few weeks where we're gonna deep dive countries we did a little bit of a deep dive on germany last week Let's deep dive France. Some interesting factors about France before we get started. Number one, camera phone was invented in France. Really? Did you know that? It's also the largest land mass, uh, land mass in Europe. The croissant, their famous pastry, was invented in Austria, not in France. It's the seventh largest economy, but it's about 80% service and only 20% industrial. They are the leading agricultural power in Europe. And this is wild. You go to Paris and you walk around and there's not a building over like three stories tall. And I always found that kind of wild. And I was assuming that the French did that for aesthetics or whatever. Actually, in about the 13th century, they started mining a lot of gypsum and limestone. And so you basically have the city of Paris built on top of a huge quarry 
And so they would routinely have sections of the city just collapse. And so they have a weight limit on buildings. And so that's why you only have three and four story buildings in, in Paris. So with that, Kirk, kick us off on French energy policy and what do we need to know? Well, I don't know a lot about French energy policy. You're right about um, they have a ton of nuclear. Um, 75% of their of their electric generation. They've shut down a few refineries, uh, mainly because of environmental concerns. Um, they are a huge service economy. In fact, just comparing the two, because last week we did talk about Germany, um, France is roughly 20% of total energy consumption in the European Union. They're second to Germany, but Germany is just so much bigger. They have such a, a large uh, mid-market mid uh, manufacturing um, community and business cycle in Germany. It's very different than France. France is super fun. So I'd rather invest my money in Germany and spend it in France. Yeah, the, the most the the most visited country on the uh on the planet. Well, Tourism. They're, they're a country strictly committed to net zero by 2050. And in fact adopted a law or a bill in February that basically is a, a renewable acceleration bill, which is interesting. It was introduced in September last year and was adopted pretty quickly, I guess, by um European parliamentary timeline standards. And so, you know, this includes an ultimate phase out of nuclear and a prescription for, I think the number is 90% ultimately to be renewable generated power, 70% of that coming from wind and solar. So it's a pretty long putt from here, just given where we are. And the fact that you've got such dominance in nuclear in your in your power stack and 2050 sounds like a long way off, but it's well, they're trying to reduce their nuclear from 70 percent to 50 percent by 2035. So they're moving relatively quickly, and that's going to be replaced by renewables. And and they're I think they're they increased their share of renewables in its energy mix um, to 32 percent by 2030. Yeah, and, I, and it's interesting because they were trying to develop the nuclear bomb along with the United States and yeah. Germany in World War II. They had some success, and then you had the energy embargo of the early 70s, and so they were the country that went all in on nuclear. I think another part of that is they've got a ton of coal, but it's low-quality stuff. It's really expensive to mine, so they pretty quickly – moved they always mine their own coal but they moved away from from their own coal and traded with other countries using their agricultural might so they wind up going all in on nuclear and i think and and just as an observer from the outside it's like you know the average eu electric cost is 25 cent per kilowatt they're right. at like 22 so they're cheaper than average they have, in effect, close to zero emissions because, you know, they got nuclear. But the environmentalist story on waste was able to take hold. Anytime mm. you have a drought, uh, you need a lot of water to cool all those nuclear plants. Absolutely. And that raises the water cost, which, you know, the public that needs to drink water, flush their toilets is going, hey, we're paying 
for a lot of this stuff. And those bidets aren't flowing is what those you're saying. Those bidets are flowing. And then the last thing is, I think, and I heard Joe Rogan talk about this, and this makes a lot of sense, is, you know, the problem with nuclear and Chernobyl, et cetera, is not <clears throat> nuclear per se. It's that we built all this stuff in the 70s, and we just sucked. The whole world sucked building stuff in the 70s. I mean, go drive a car from the 70s. They just sucked. So we built these bad plants and these like bad- the Pinto or exactly. the AMC Pacer, <laughs> exactly <laughs> classic seventies. The, 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 the Chrysler Toyota collaboration on the Sephora <laughs> was literally man. the worst car the ever Nova. made. But no, you and and so now what you're facing is you're facing shutdown of all these, a rebuild of all this nuclear capacity. And it's just going to be really, really expensive, way more so. Because France should be your, your if, if you were committed to having zero emissions, et cetera, nuclear ought to be the poster child for it. And it's just not happening. I, I've been following nuclear and because uh, it's fascinating to me. And oil and gas companies traditionally, especially in the venture groups, have been like, no nuclear. We don't invest in that. That's changed. Nuclear startups are starting to raise capital, even from oil and gas. I think the trend is France will probably going to back off of their nuclear ambitions to, to wind down. I just don't think they can afford it. If renewables do ramp up, great for them. It definitely gives them another piece, not only to hit their emissions goals, but also to offset, for instance, when there's droughts. And, 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 and that's, that's a huge issue. But I think that we're going to see France probably back off in the next decade. That's my call. So I would think France has a bigger challenge than Germany does going forward with energy. Because if Germany wants to pivot, they do have their coal and they could go that direction. They can build their LNG import terminals. France is almost starting from ground zero. And what policy always dictates other policies is economic policy. Germany has the capability to generate income. And and unlike France, I think France is there is more dependent on on since it's a heavy service economy, they're more dependent on the economy being good around the world. Because that's when people spend money, especially in France. So the European fight on is LNG green energy or not, et cetera. France is potentially on a different page with other people, just given that they don't have their dependence to Mark's, Mark's and, point. And they're like, just the French, man. They do things their way. They're cool. Yeah, and part of, part of that, we talked about it a long time ago, part of that taxonomy argument you know, among the EU energy ministers about um, natural gas also included nuclear, if you recall. So, again, it's interesting from the standpoint of you got 70 to 75% of your generation stack is – zero emissions nuclear and you're not you know you're not kind of digging in if you will so is nuclear waste not counted that's a good but, question but let's just put that on the side we'll get back let's get back to our audience yeah, on that we, one. and you know what we need to do we actually need to do a deep dive on nuclear waste because really what we're talking about is like all the nuclear waste in the world like fits in an oil barrel or something and it's not like <laughs> it's we're it's fl- a very it's proportionally a, small. Yeah. And amount. you can, it's and not, you can, it, do, it doesn't take a lot of nuclear to do a lot of damage as we know, but at the same time, the, just the physical space requirements of disposal are not proportionally exactly. great. 
why is the nuclear waste it's always in a oil barrel? <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, we should put it. We should put it in an iPhone. Yes, case. Right. That's right. Let's, let's change do, it. When we talk about crude realities on any of the business media, why do they show conveyor belts with fifty-five gallon drums on them? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No so doubt. There's a whole BDE we could do on. How did we lose the narrative? That's right. right <laughs> that's there. right. All righty, guys. Thank you for tuning in. If you like the podcast, share it with a friend. Subscribe and masters. Oh. Give us the download on the Masters, Kirk. Sorry. Look, My I bad. was hoping for a live finish, but just for the controversy. But John Rahm had a the winner of the Masters, great Spaniard. Um, he won on Seve Ballesteros birthday. There's good history because on Easter is when the Spaniards win. So Seve Ballesteros, it's his birthday. He's won on Easter. Uh, Sergio Garcia's won on Easter. Jose Maria Olafabel, who used to play the same irons as me, incredible ball striker, has won on Easter. And now John Rom. John Rom got a really bad draw. So he had to play when the weather was the worst. When, you know, Brooks Kepka, who's the most arrogant player I've seen in a long time, had the clear lead. He is arrogant. I mean, but I I, I like him, but he's arrogant. Um, John Rom won. And I want to give a shout out to our Texan. Uh, he's an Aggie, you know. Um, Sam Bennett. He was the low amateur, the only amateur to actually play on the weekend. And he stuck it out and played like a, a gentleman. Great, great story, background story about his, his losing his dad a couple of years ago to early onset Alzheimer's. Absolutely. And I think the quote his dad gave him that he has tattooed on his wrist. You remember what it says? You know what it says? Says, don't wait to do things. Pops. That's right. Pops. Pops. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. Kudos to him. And, and he's in a match play, thirty-six holes today. today. I don't know if he's. I don't where, know if he's still he, playing. He said he was doing. He said he was going to play, and he. It's a match play where you carry your own bag. Nice. Do you think he flew home from the Masters public? I mean, did he fly like Southwest? How do you get back to A and M? Is my question. That's a great question. I know exactly how he got back. <laughs> Private, probably Chucky's private, was one of the Aggie my donors, former, private jet. My, my former, former plane. Yeah. He's on your former plane. Nice. Digital Wildcatters, thank you for tuning in. As I said earlier, if you like the podcast, share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.